When you were leaving religion, did you ever feel like your religion was leaving you? Well, my next guest talks about this, and it's quite profound what he shares as his insights, and then also along with his knowledge of philosophy and some really beautiful truths that he has come to learn. But before we dive into this interview, I want to share that I have received in a meditation one morning, I was asking some deep questions for myself and I was shown a really beautiful activation. And especially when we step out of religion and we're trying to navigate these places within us of where do I go now? What's my intuition? How can I trust myself? How do I access or even tap into this new version of God? I was shown an activation to tap in and activate the inner guru. And a guru is someone that turns you back to yourself. And this is something that every single one of us has access to. And I'm excited to announce that I am doing a webinar on... October 30th at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. And this is going to be a really beautiful call that will walk through any resistance, any blocks that you may be currently having. We'll clear that. We'll activate this inner guru. We'll talk, we'll go through a guided journey that where I will assist you in activating this. And then we will move through ways in which you can utilize this and start working with this on a day-to-day basis. And then I have a few really beautiful things after that that I will share with you as well. But this will be a really powerful call to really assist you in tapping into that space inside of you that knows all the answers, that has that strong intuition, that is more strongly guided to what your soul is desiring and wanting in this life. Head over to my website, amandajoyloveland.com forward slash activation to get registered today. Now, without further ado, let's dive into this really beautiful conversation I got to have with Erin Trembath. Well, I am so excited to be sitting down today with Aaron Trembath. Good thing I know how to pronounce that now. <laughs> I would tricky. have totally butchered it. Uh, that's all right. Yeah, most people do. I do sometimes. Yeah. You do? Yeah, I've noticed. Um, so since I lived in Australia, I heard a lot of Trimboth. People oh. are like, oh, Trimboth or Trimbaugh or whatever. And I'm like, is that how it's supposed to be said? Because my name is like British. And so, I don't know. It's been, every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll fumble it. Yeah. My own name. That's funny. <laughs> well, you're like, today I might feel like I'm a Tremboth or Trembath. Right. You know, it's why just, not? Why sometimes not I'm just it? overly aware of the people I'm talking to, and I just got to not do that sometimes. Mm. Well, I am so happy that you said yes to this. You and I got to spend some time at a recent retreat um, down in Zions, and the more I got to know you, it's like, oh, you were fun. I would love <laughs> to have you on my podcast. Yeah, it was a so, real treat. What a beautiful retreat it was. Yeah, it was mm. very, very unique for sure, and as they always are. Mm. But um, I, what I love is that I know a little tiny bit of your story, but I don't know very much of your story. But mm. some of the little antics that you were communicating, I'm like, oh, <laughs> will you please come be on my podcast? Of course, I'm glad. And to here be we here. are. Thanks Yay. for having me. It's been. I'm really excited. I'm excited. So tell me a little bit about your background. And did you, were you born and raised in the Mormon church? Yes, that's right. So both of my parents were uh, converts to the church. They joined in their teen years, I'm pretty sure, both of them. Um, My father, uh, his parents, my grandparents joined the church when they were um, young parents, I guess. Mm -hmm. So my dad, that was really one of the main reasons, as I understand it, that they joined the church. Um, they'd gone through some really deep, like trauma. They lost a child in a like really gruesome accident as a farming accident really, and then then a car accident afterwards. So so they lost a child in a car accident or in a, the same. So, so it was a farming accident. The tractor tipped over on the kid. Okay. He was like, like five, I think. 
Yeah. And they were, he was, you know, he's still alive and they were taking him to the hospital and then they had a wreck. Are you kidding? Could you not? Wow. And in that wreck, one of the neighboring kids, like down the road, 17 year old kids, they like to kind of prank people by pulling out in front of them on the dirt roads. And my granddad was going way too fast and because he was trying uh, to save his son. Yeah. So the guy pulls out in front of him and he gets T-boned. And so I think one of them was paralyzed, one of the teenagers. Holy cow. Yeah, and then one of them was killed. And then, and then my uncle, a six-year-old at the time, was killed. Wow. And so there's this really deep family trauma that even now is not really resolved. Yeah, I can, I can feel that. Yeah. I'm going to pause you for a second. We're going to just move it. In. No worries. I'll adapt. Okay, that's better. Okay. Beautiful. But yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, it was really traumatic. And so as a result of that, like my grandparents were, I mean, they were, my granddad, you know, they've done a bunch of different work, but uh, they had a homestead in Wyoming. And my grandpa was just kind of always, a work is their identity, really, mm -hmm. like constant work. And well, they, if they were they farmers, uh -huh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And the farming was their goal. It wasn't like they're farmers because they had to be. Uh -huh. My granddad worked on the railroad so he could be a farmer. Hmm. It was crazy. That is interesting. Such a different mentality. Yeah, well, different generations. It's a generational gap, right? So, but for him, this was his dream, and I, you know, I appreciate the dream. is beautiful, right? Um, but anyway, so they they go through this, you know, serious trauma. My father, like literally crushed his brother to death in this wow. car wreck, right? Like trying to save him. Yeah. And uh, everyone blames themselves and has slight resentment for each other. And it's just, it's a really nasty thing. And everybody's kind of wrestling with it. And in this moment of like, you know, loss of the son, this child that they love, um, sometime later they, you know, were introduced to the church, the Mormon mm -hmm. church mm -hmm. and joined the church um, I'm sure the eternal family piece was big for it them. It was very big and still is. Yeah. And so all of them, I'm pretty sure, except one, are like, oh, except two, are super active. Uh, I have two two aunts that have kind of made their own choices and, and stepped away. Well, not to say that the ones that have stayed haven't made their choices. They've right. chosen it. Yeah. Um, it just seems like a safer choice, right, mm -hmm. to stay. So anyway, that's kind of my backstory. I... I was born into the church. Um, my dad was attending BYU Law School when I was young. I think I was I was born when I was born in Provo. Oh my gosh! I can't believe this is going public. I was born. <laughs> I was born in we Utah. We can edit out any of this yeah. you don't want out there. I was born in Utah. Oh, I haven't. I'm not a Utah person, uh, but I was born in Utah. Uh, well, my dad was attending BYU. Yeah, I uh, was a civil engineer. That's where he met my mom. Mm -hmm. uh, they had. Four kids in the first batch, and then mm -hmm. and then divorced when I was like twelve. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's my backstory. I was in the church for my entire life. Um, I served a mission. Mm -hmm. I was a very good missionary, very yeah. obedient, but also very um, and free thinking. And so I think you know people are like, oh, when did you leave the church? When's your when's your apostasy or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I think mine is really. I don't know that I left the church as much as the church left me, mm -hmm. and. Um, my understanding of spirituality in general was that it's radically personal. Yeah. And that, and I think that's the doctrine of the church too. Like even though people in the church might not acknowledge it, mm -hmm. there's no one gets into your interior space. Nobody, nobody can see like the heart of you. Yeah. And so whatever your relationship with the divine is, is so radically personal that you can't, you can't put a label on it. You know, mm -hmm. you can't say, Oh, this is, 
you're not spiritual enough or your relationship with God is incomplete because it, it's not mm-hmm. yours to talk about. It's mine. Mm-hmm. And so I had this really kind of radical view of religion as it being like, like a function of spirituality, not the other way around. Mm. And so on my mission, you know, I'd speak to people about what I perceive to be the truth of the, of the gospel, which is like, you know, be good to people, love people. And then these other things were just like all the covenants and things that you talk about are just things you do because of it. Yeah. And so for me, that's what it was that the love was the, was the essence of it. And so I was accused by a lot of, people who had left the church that I met with, right? The less actives that, uh, that I was like some kind of new age Mormon. They're like, Oh, you're the next thing. If the church has an army of you, it's going to be great because I wasn't the rigid, um, hyper aggressive, even though I was raised that way. Uh I really was. I was raised like you are obedient to the letter. I was obedient, but I was obedient because I chose it. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was like my gift and it was something I willingly gave. So, so yeah, my I guess my personal apostasy really started on my mission um, where I saw people in the church just being like beautiful and loving and also really irreverent. Like my first branch president uh, greeted me with this, like he was a huge dude, President Stewart. He was massive. Like I'm a big guy, right? So those you, you can't see me. Uh, <laughs> about 6'2", and like right now I'm like 200 and pounds. And... Uh, <laughs> I love that you just did that. I'm a, well, I was I was shocked that you were gonna say how much you weighed. I'm like, man, this is so different. Yeah. Guys just being like, yeah, I'm this. Women are like, I'm not telling yeah, you yeah. my so, weight. But I'm a if you're just watching this from home, I'm a big dude. <laughs> and uh this guy dwarfed me and he had like hands, it was like shaking a Christmas ham. So big. And uh he greets me, he's like, Elder Trimbath, how the hell are you? He says, and I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> he said hell. Uh, he said hell, and he didn't say it as if the geography. I don't understand, right? And so for me, I saw this giant, this spiritual giant, and physical, but mostly spiritual giant. And it, that was this beautiful experience. Mm. And he was so irreverent, you know. And so I was like, okay, so that's obviously not the gospel. Cussing is not important right mm-hmm. because this is a beautiful person that cusses like a sailor right <laughs> so i'm like that's got to be a shift and so i started going through the shifts I, I went on my mission a little bit late um i wanted people to give up on me first if that mm. makes sense i wanted it to be for me and not for them yeah and so yeah i went out and served and for me it was like it was my gift to god mm-hmm. right um, so then when it got really hard, it was like, okay, yeah, it's hard. This sucks. Um, but I am, you know, it's my, I viewed it at the time as my tithing of mm. my life, mm. right? It's my 10th of my life to that point. Mm-hmm. And I was willingly giving it. So the obedient part wasn't difficult at all. I was able to be perfectly obedient, but the real, the real trick came in like when it started to be not about love, mm. right? If it wasn't about loving the people you were serving, but about teaching more lessons and tracting more hours and whatever else. And I started to really struggle with it. I was like, no, that's not the point here. Like I get it. Those are practices, but the goal should be love. Yeah. So, so anyway, I started to develop Buddhist tendencies um, on my mission. Did you know that they were Buddhist tendencies? Yeah, I think so. So I I studied a lot of, I studied a lot, period. Mm -hmm. Um, So your whole life you've been, because yes. you're quite educated now. Yeah, well, thank you. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm I'm quite, I suppose, 
educated, but I love it. I love learning. And so to me, that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. So I really dug into religion in general. Like I wanted to know the world religions. Mm -hmm. Like how do you wrap your head around Shintoism, right? Like as somebody raised Christian, that very notion was just so radically different. But then if you're speaking to someone from Shintoism, it really helps to have a foundation of like, what language do they, like, how do you communicate For with those that? that don't know what Shintoism, includes, including me, what is it? So it, it's an idea of like not God. like Oh, so it's not agnostic? No. Or atheist? It is a, f- oh man, I don't want to get in trouble here. Why? Uh, be, because I'm about, I, I'm not a Shintoist, right? Uh-huh. Um, all I've done is like read a little bit about it to get like a foundation. Right. So anytime you're dealing with Eastern religions, let's go like Eastern religions writ large. Uh-huh. Um, you start to get away from the idea of a knowable deity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, God, right? This notion of God. Uh, being the white a, male. A single white, like a white dude with a beard floating in the sky, covered uh-huh. in light, made of light. That yeah. thing, that that entity is not even a thing. Mm-hmm. So like my aunt, <laughs> my aunt served her mission in Japan and she she came back talking about this time she, during Christmas because what is Christmas if you, there's no Christ? Right. Uh, where in, I think it was Sapporo, they had a, uh, one of the malls had a Christmas display and there's a crucifix put up, which is, you know, whatever. It's, it's a thing about Christmas. Uh-huh. But there was a Santa Claus on the cross. Oh, they interesting. They had crucified Santa, Santa. Because I didn't understand. Like there's no foundation yeah. of what the difference is. Huh, right? interesting. So, Eastern Hmm. religion proper is more about spirituality Mm -hmm. and it's less about one individual. Like this is obedience to God. So you have like all these different, it's more like philosophy really. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you talk to somebody about God when there isn't no God to them? Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so that was tricky and I needed to understand it a little bit. So Shintoism, Buddhism, a lot of the Eastern religions writ large are like, they, they wrestle with the notion of spirituality without, sometimes even without a sense of the individual, right? Like mm. that the individual, me, is an illusion. Mm-hmm. And any time I try to speak about it, I'm only reinforcing that illusion. Interesting. And so the whole idea behind, um, again, I'm kind of a baby in the world of Buddhism. I don't know much about it. Um, I'm only saying this for you, Alan, if you're listening. <laughs> My buddy, Alan. <laughs> Is a Buddhist getting his doctorate right now? Oh, in, super cool! In uh, comparative philosophy, he's comparing wow. Deleuze and Nagarjuna, this ancient Buddhist philosopher. Anyway, well, for most of the population, yeah. we don't know much about most religions. Cool, cool. So Mormons that are listening, or Exmos, or whatever you are, <laughs> however you identify, Christians, uh, Christians yeah. in general, um, Buddhism itself. The the notion is that like the purpose of life, if such as it is, is to get rid of suffering. Mm-hmm to minimize, reduce, and then ultimately remove suffering. Uh, And there's this like wheel of, like karma, we talk about karma, we don't really understand what it means, but we talk about karma. This karmic wheel, the wheel of samsara is where we're all of our, like the us, the essence of us, links in and then gets this false idea of individuality. Mm -hmm. Like for some reason there's a me all of a sudden, right? Mm -hmm. Even though the thing that is real, isn't me, but it's us, right? It's this unified sense of everyone. That's why I like, you know, Buddhism, make me one with the universe. That's the point, is that the universe itself is the essence of what is real and true. Mm-hmm. And whenever we separate ourselves from it, the very notion of ourselves, right, necessitates the separate 
Hmm. Right. If I say not me and me, all of a sudden there's a line drawn. Yeah. Right. And the way that Western thought has developed, I think pretty much going all the way back to the ancient Greeks and even the pre-Socratics, you get into uh, pre-Socratics before Socrates, uh, you get into this notion of like, there is a thing, there is a soul, an individual, mm-hmm. right? And that mm-hmm. individual for some reason is important. And this is just ego, right? This is this notion of the self. But but the Buddhist would say, no, that's all illusory. Everything that you're talking about, all these words that we are using right now, are just reinforcing this notion of self that's artificial. Hmm. And all of your suffering comes from this notion of self and attachment to it. And well, and it's such an interesting concept because when you when you scale back and you look at each religion and the motivation behind the the religions, right? If if you are practicing Buddhism and you are going under that notion that we that I don't have the self, mm-hmm. then every choice that I make is more for the all instead of the one. Right. And in that sense, there would be uh, less suffering. There would be more right. of a conscious environment that we're more united. Right. And there's a lot of beauty in that. And we know that there's nine grams that leaves the body when right. it dies. And right. There is some beauty, this is a total tangent, oh, yeah. but when I do plant medicine, one of the things that I really resist is going to the void. Mm. I don't like that feeling. And if you don't know what the void is, the void is like the nothingness where everything exists and nothing exists. Right. And so it is like this dismantling of the soul where you become nothing right. and all things. Right. And it is the most bizarre, and some people love this feeling. Right. I personally do not. Right. I like having my uniqueness, mm-hmm. that my unique signature of, you know, I'm here to do some things on this earth and nothing I do matters. Mm. Like there's that part that I mm. understand that it is for the self, but it is fascinating. Right. You know, you think of that meditation that uh, as a Buddha that had done where we're on the flower and only one person had gotten it. And yeah. it is when you connect into the idea that we're connected to all things. Right. And I think... You make different choices. So so the Buddhist would say, cool, enjoy it, live your life. You'll be reincarnated and have another life to do it again. Yeah. And so the point of the Buddhist life is ultimately to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. And that suffering, the underlying premise is that suffering comes from attachment. Mm-hmm. And your attachment to yourself, mm-hmm. that's that's going to cause suffering. Like if I pull away what you perceive to be yourself, all of a sudden you resist it. You're like, yeah. Oh, this is, a, and you, and there's suffering attached to it. Mm-hmm. But if you can become unattached to the self and say, yeah, there's my, my lived experience is this and it's pretty dope and I'm just going to roll with it. Um, and then I'll do it again. Then I do it again <laughs> until I don't. Right. Uh-huh. And that's kind of the point is like you, you get to the stage where, there is no attachment even to your identity. Mm-hmm. That's the end goal. And we're, and and look, the idea behind behind um, well, the idea of Buddhism, the same thing sort of in Hinduism, is that you're just going to keep going until you get it. And so your soul, multiple lives, mm-hmm. it experiences multiple iterations uh, where you get to focus on breaking these attachments. And mm-hmm. sometimes you have a life full of suffering. Like you're, you know, who knows what kind of suffering, but you live that so that you can release it. Yeah. And so that's that, but that's their, the underlying premise. So, but you're exactly right. It's like a why to the religion. And so I think Christianity has at its foundation, the why is some kind of redemption, right? Mm-hmm. That there's a broken part of you, that there's a thing that for some reason is, is not good. 
the fall of Adam is intrinsic to almost all Christian mm-hmm. faith. You are a sin. The natural man Correct. is a and sinner. Is a sinner. Is an enemy to God. Mm-hmm. Not just like God's not cool with it. It's an enemy. An enemy. That's gnarly. Yeah. Like, and yet Christ embodied love, unconditional right. love, exactly. and God's supposed to be unconditionally loving. So right. there's so many contradictions right. within Christianity. Right. Right. So Christianity's got some things to wrestle with, and so anyway, my personal journey was um, I'd been studying a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and, and you know I studied like so-called new age philosophies and religions and whatever. Um, and even as a missionary, I would attend other services. I loved it. Right. I'd walk in in my Mormon missionary gear, and I'd go to a Jehovah's Witness uh, oh, Nis- Nissan 14. I went to their Passover, which was like amazing. Um, you know, where you, they're figuring out which of you are the 144,000. Man, I interviewed somebody that was a Jehovah's Witness. I did not know some of those things. That was really fascinating. Yeah, it was really, really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I'd walk in and hang out with the Hare Krishnas, and I mean, like it's just whatever. I just That's because cool. I believed in my soul, and I still do that there is truth to be had mm-hmm. from every perspective, mm-hmm. everyone. I believe that. So I'm taking all these different perspectives, as, ma- as many as I can get, wherever I can find them. Yeah, so um, I've been doing that, and I was really like considered a radical like by a lot of people, mm-hmm. which is fine. Like I'll take it. Uh, and then, I don't know, I came home. I fell into the same trap that so many people do. It's like, you've got to do these things. This is your purpose. And it's, it's interesting because there's this, there's this serious drop that occurs when you are so important in your own mind, right? Mm. Because you're a missionary and I was his own leader and I was like, I, edu- I traveled and not taught people stuff. Like I brought in missionaries and I was teaching them communication skills, mm. right? Like I was teaching them how to listen. This was my, bi- my biggest training was like a listening training. And these are young kids who don't know how to do it, right? So I'm, I know I'm changing their lives. I'm helping them. Right. So I felt great. It was wonderful to coach people even back then. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's done. And now you've what? got nothing. Yeah. And you're left to yourself. So my family had moved too. So like they moved and they sent a letter to tell me they'd moved. <laughs> and if you ever send a letter to Australia, it takes like six weeks to get there. Oh, so I get home. I flew home to an empty house. Wow. They were gone. Oh, what? Yeah. My dad was in town on business, staying in a hotel. Oh, jeez. And so he picks me up at the airport. And I'm like, oh, funny joke. Everybody's going to jump out and say surprise. And there was no surprise. The surprise was they were gone. Oh, man. Which is fine. Like, that's just kind of, I'm okay with it. But at the time, I was like, hmm. And it just really reinforced yeah. this, you're alone now. Yeah. Um. So anyway, I was radically alone. And just empty, right? Mm -hmm. Because you go from having purpose and drive and you're helping people and you really feel like like you're doing good. Mm -hmm. And then then you're not. You're home. You're just sitting on your hands doing nothing. It's crazy. Yeah. So all of a sudden, like, you're in this emptiness and the pressure is you got to do stuff. You got to go out. You got to get married. You got to, you know, Mm -hmm. start a family. You got to, and all these pressure, all the pressure was there. And I just kind of like, what else am I going to do? So, I uh, went back to school, got married really young, um, really quick too, mm-hmm. like way too quick. And yeah, my personal journey was was one of like trying to sort myself out from there. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of 
growing up, there was a lot of like, uh, how do you, I'll call it religious abuse because my stepmother was really like hyper Mormon, mm. but didn't understand any of it. Mm -hmm. Had no foundation or knowledge of it and didn't want to. To her, her ignorance was powerful. Yeah. Right? And so she leaned into it. And so she's she has no functional knowledge of it, but she mm. would use it as a cudgel to like control mm -hmm. myself and my brothers mm. and my sister and everybody, like everybody except her kids. Uh, <laughs> and so it was really like, it's not that it was abuse in the name of religion, but it was that religion was her tool of abuse, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like it was her method of control. And so... I don't want to make light of any other types of abuse. I know they're very serious and I've experienced some of them. Um, but religious abuse was particularly insidious because it's your entire world, mm -hmm. not just your now, it's your future. The salvation of your, your soul. salvation, mm -hmm. your eternity. Mm -hmm. And that was being like beaten into me every mm. day. So it was really savage. Um, and, and built into it, especially in, well, especially in Christian and Mormon faith is you're you're broken you're wrong mm -hmm. fundamentally mm -hmm. you are bad mm -hmm. and so yeah like that was like really hard to deal with yeah but what are you gonna do so you lean into it uh and then i don't know like i became a sunday school teacher and i don't know i'm pretty uh i'm pretty charismatic and i know how to educate mm -hmm. and i love teaching i was i was uh, at the time I was coaching at um, Purdue, I was their speech and debate coach. Mm. And I was teaching argumentation and really just having a great time. But then also I was all of a sudden the Sunday school teacher, which I mean, it's fine. Like I'm doctrinally sound even now. Mm -hmm. I understand the doctrines really well. So teaching real world application of love. Is what oh, I was interesting. And all of a sudden people are like, wow, this is such a great take. And I'm like, yeah. it's not a take, it's the religion. But anyway, we had, it was fun. And then... I realized that the religion itself was leaving me mm. less I leaving it, mm -hmm. uh, but more the other way around. And so I don't know. Tell me more what you mean by that. If, if you take a look at what Christ actually taught, right? Whether you consider Jesus to be a real person historically mm -hmm. or, or a parable or mm -hmm. whatever, or mm -hmm. just like, it, there's even debate about whether Socrates was real, right? Or whether Plato just kind of invented him so that he could put out his philosophy mm -hmm. from the mouth of another. It doesn't matter, right? If Jesus was or wasn't real, the teachings that came from it mm -hmm. were fundamentally about love, forgiveness, being kind and gentle, mm -hmm. and accepting everyone. Yeah. Loving the sinner. Like, mm -hmm. who did Jesus hang out with, man? Mm -hmm. Like, it was, it was like what society considered to be the, the dregs. Mm -hmm. And also Jesus was like considered a wine bibber and like, people were like, oh man, you're just, you're just as radical. And it occurred to me that what was happening in the church was that the very thing in the Bible that most of them didn't read was happening but that they were the Pharisees, <laughs> right? Like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you're a scribe and a Pharisee. What the hell? Why are you not embracing the love of the yeah. sinner, right? And so it, it occurred to me more, more and more frequently that people in the church and the church itself, the shifting in the doctrines 
was away from love mm-hmm. and towards something very different. It was toward, in my opinion, it's toward the construct of the church yeah. itself as a business. Yeah, yeah, maintenance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of what the fundamentals. But I, I don't know, that could go into a whole other conversation. I believe really strongly that what was started is not, a, it is drastically different in the intentions of what was originally created by Joseph Smith versus what we have now. Sure. I, I think, I think it's like, almost a guarantee mm-hmm. right and under, under the guise men, different mm-hmm. under the guise of continued revelation you can mm-hmm. shift it any direction like look what happened just recently mm-hmm. the church is shifting really hard mm-hmm. and i think it's scrambling in a lot of ways which is you know it's right i suppose well they have more members leaving than ever right. i mean religion in general is not just the mormon religion yeah, there's, but... a, there's a hemorrhage so so for me um i realized that there was this radical shift uh and that it wasn't matching mm-hmm. my understanding of the divine. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of the divine was also changing. So I studied, um, I studied philosophy and um, persuasion, which seems contradictory perhaps. Um, but that's kind of why I did it. I'm, like, mm-hmm. I'm a study in contradictions. I love it. You, you did coach and debate. I did, yeah. And <laughs> it's interesting. My first philosophy course, it was an intro to philosophy class. Oh, no, this is my second one. This is my second one. My first one was brilliant and changed my life. The second one was total dog shit. Pardon me. Can I say that? I'm sorry. Yeah, you was, totally can. was okay. rough. Uh, These are people that are leaving religion. They think they're open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I did do a post on my in in my leaving religion group and said, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And, mm. and I had a woman comment that... Like, I just don't understand the swearing. I'm like, if you have problems with me saying hell, you probably shouldn't be following me. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. Everyone, direct, Everyone's I, different. I directed a play, um, and it was very, like, it was about loss of a child. And so oh. it was, like, for my grandmother. Yeah. Um, and in it, there's a lot of mourning and swearing and aggression and, like, a lot of F-bombs being Well, dropped. the anger moving through. It's something you just have to process. Yeah. And I had, most people loved it and cried through it and had a great experience. It was Rabbit Hole by David Lindsay Baird. If you get a chance to see the play or to read it even, a a spectacular piece. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so, but there's a lot of swearing. And uh, my star, the female star of the show, uh, her mother saw it. And at the end, she's like, you know, wiping tears from her eyes. And she's like, beautiful, but I really could have done with all the swearing, without Mm -hmm. all the swearing. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but here's the thing that's how people are <laughs> like this is real right and you might not swear but these people do yeah and a lot of people do so anyway talk, i just think talk that, about loving the sinner like right. you know if you believe that that is a sin right I don't, yeah it is interesting yeah so uh i studied philosophy my first course was really great that was with uh calvin o Schrag, an introduction to the masters of philosophy who calvin Schrag was a master of philosophy he was mm. one of the last continental philosophers i think he's still alive professor emeritus taught at stony brook and at purdue and just oh my god that was, that was such, such a genius i have a story about him but we'll get to that later <laughs> so the second class was uh introduction to philosophy like just like 101 phil 101 taught by some grad student that whatever she (laughs) in the first session we started talking about sophistry so sophistry is the use of um persuasion to win an argument okay they don't care about the truth they care about winning Mm. think like lawyers Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um my dad's a lawyer and he might take issue if dad if you ever listen to this congratulations and also (laughs) (laughs) don't worry about it yeah and also we'll talk uh but yeah so 
the idea really is sophists don't care about truth. They care about winning. Mm-hmm. And that's a real dig. If you're a philosopher and you call someone a sophist, it's like slapping them in the face, right? Ooh. At first, 20 minutes of my class, we get into sophistry and I just ask a couple questions because I love learning and I'm asking questions. And this, this TA stops the class. He's like, everyone, this is Aaron. He's a sophist. <gasps> and I'm like, oh, I know that's an insult. I don't fully understand it yet. But, and so that, that's like my introduction to bad philosophy. Oh, interesting. Um, but that's just because I value persuasion and the understanding of the other. So anyway, I at Purdue, I studied philosophy and I studied persuasion. And uh, I'm not even sure why I'm on this riff. But yeah, so the notion of philosophy to me is about discovering truth. Like finding it wherever mm-hmm. it is. Ah, my my shifting. We were talking about Jesus and yeah. even played if he was real or not. Right. So and and my shifting understanding of the divine occurs as I start to wrestle with the notions that are presented, like throughout history, like yeah. what we as as people forever have been struggling with the notion of reality, mm-hmm. the notion of our permanence, mm-hmm. like what is real? Are we real? Mm-hmm. How do we know? What's the foundation by which we judge? How can we develop an ethic? Uh, there's all these different questions that we've been wrestling with, and they're important questions. All of a sudden, I start wrestling with them in a non-religious way, right? Because, How could you not if you're embedded in that and yeah. having all, yeah, you, of course you would. But up to that point, I had gotten away with just kind of saying, I will look at it through the paradigm of my faith. Mm-hmm. And that's what most people do. Mm-hmm. They have um, a faith that is unassailable. It's unquestionable because it's faith. It's mm-hmm. powerful, right? And he's like, oh no, this is this is the magic faith. You can't touch it. It's my sacred cow. Yeah. And from there... Magic faith. That's it. Yeah. And from there, they get all this other stuff. Uh-huh. Well, good for you, I guess. But really, when you start looking at things from a, a truth first perspective, faith is going... There, every philosophy is going to have what we call a bubble in the fly paper, right? Mm-hmm. Underneath it all, there's something you just have to like swallow. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, this is an assumption that I can't get around. I'm, and, but I'll just say it's good enough and I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Faith, yes, has a role in that. But if you're coming from a position of faith first or theology first, all of a sudden everything fits, it, you just mold it to fit you. Right, mm-hmm. rather than acknowledging it as independently true or false. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I'm like pursuing truth, like for its own sake, right? And it starts to lead me to these conclusions about the self and about eternity and about if infinity exists, then we have to necessarily believe this and this and this. Mm-hmm. So I get all these conclusions starting to pour in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it jives with my faith, right? Because I'm like, okay, cool. I, my understanding of the divine is that it's radically personal and this and this and this. And so I can get to, I can get to like make it make sense. But then all of a sudden it starts to not, you know, I start to get to these points where, um, my so it's not even that my faith starts to shift from the church but my faith starts to, my faith starts to shift in general mm-hmm. right and then it's almost like your whole foundation of what do i believe to be true is right. just shaken right. to its core yeah which i think is really healthy uh-huh. right like if you've never it's challenging hard really hard yeah but also how many people have taken you know like maybe even like five days to say, what do I actually believe? What is actually real? Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes you don't even know how to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at, you know, some of the other great thinkers and say, okay, what did they say about this? Mm -hmm. Is there a thing that endures past death? Like, that's a big question. And why do I think that that's true? What conclusion am I coming to and what, what's getting me there? And so for a lot of people, myself included at this point, I had done some of the work, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I start, you know, doing the hard work on, you know, what's the reality of the universe? Can we know things? Like, what is knowledge in the first place? They're hard questions. Yeah, they are. Uh, I start wrestling with it. And I don't know, I'm still jiving with religion. I'm still like... I'm still teaching, you know, Sunday school and I'm giving my take and things are getting a lot out of it. At this time in your life. Mm -hmm. okay. Not now, correct. Not now. Yes, I just wanted to clarify. Then, thank you. That's good clarification. <laughs> uh, but like at that point. Your teaching had to shift, had to have shifted as yeah, you're going it through this. It, but it became, it became more, um, it became less about, oh man, how do you say it? The doctrine? I still taught the doctrine and okay. I taught it hard, right? Because the doctrine itself like if you actually look at it is a fun is fundamentally pretty pretty good if you go with the Jesus stuff right mm -hmm. but then where it started to like become difficult is when you get out of that mm -hmm. but i focus on that i focus on love and being good to people and like you know the ethic of of doing the right thing for the right reason and not because god's going to punish you for it or right. whatever for reward and so all of a sudden people are starting to have these little micro shifts and i'm like okay this is way fun and then I don't know. There, there just came a time when um, it wasn't there anymore. I was done, mm -hmm. and I can't. I don't know that there was a single moment, or mm -hmm. if it was this gradual, like got tired of it. Mm -hmm. But I do know that there were a couple of big, like, oh yeah, that, I'm finished now moments, and and one of them was, and you probably get this a lot actually when people talk about their moments. Um, I feel like everyone's are pretty unique, although yours yeah. and mine are oddly a little similar. Which I have not ran into. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, for me, I knew there was no reconciliation when the church came out with the position that children oh, yes. of gay yes. parents cannot be baptized. This, that was my final, like... Yeah. Yeah. And up to that, there were these shifts, but I was still, like, okay with stuff. I was like, ah, uh, yeah, okay, like, whatever. My version of Mormonism, I'm a Mormon Buddhist, I tell people. Yeah. You know. That's interesting. Because, I, you know, it's a, a, a Buddhist philosophy. I, I'm not a good Buddhist. <laughs> I don't even consider myself proper Buddhist. <laughs> I, but, like, the idea was that it was informed yeah. by Buddhism. Uh -huh. uh, so, anyway, when that came out, I was like, what is going on? This doesn't make any sense, logically. Right. Right. My brain was messed up with it. Like, no way. This doesn't work. My heart was out of whack with it. It's like, that, that a child? Mm -hmm. You're going to tell a child that they, Why? Right. And so my heart and my and my brain and my very soul just rejected mm -hmm. this notion. And I should clarify, that's when I was already out, but that is mm -hmm. when it was, because I feel like you go through this position, you choose to step out of the religion, and then it's that whole wrestling of, do I keep my records yeah. or do I get my have my records removed? Yeah. And that was my, when that happened, it was like, oh, I am, nope, yeah. we're done. For, it just didn't make sense to me. It, at the very least, be consistent. Right. Right. Like if you're an organization, you need to be consistent. You can't say, you know, this is the case for somebody and this isn't the case for somebody else. No special exceptions. Be consistent. Yeah. And there's this children of gay people can't be married or can't be married, can't be baptized. But they didn't say the same thing about even a murderer. Yeah. Right. Like if your parents are serial killers, you can still join the church. 
How messed up is that? Uh huh. That's that's absolutely messed up. So they're saying then that homosexuality is worse than it, well, murder. it's uniquely something. It's uniquely bad to them or whatever. Like, and it's not even that. It's not even homosexuality because like it's not the child is an eight year old child. Right. It's the parents. Uh-huh. Like it just blew my mind. It made zero sense. And that's when I was like, yeah, okay, well, I'm not even going to try anymore. I can't even pretend to pretend. Yeah. And so for me, I'd always been, I'd been really like strictly obedient. And even up until very recently, I found myself like, just kind of like, well, even if I don't buy the church, I've made this promise. Mm -hmm. Like I promised God or the divine or the universe or whatever that I wouldn't do whatever this Mm -hmm. is. Um, and so the promise itself was sacred to me Hmm. and it still kind of is like, if I make a promise, I'll keep it. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I look at the promises that I made and I was like, but did I really understand them? Was it a promise that I wanted to make? Mm -hmm. Was it willing or was I culturally pressured into doing it? Yeah. It was just the thing that you did. Yeah. Even though you technically have a a way to escape, you, where are you going to go? Uh, I didn't have a tribe. So I think, um, yeah, I think it was the um, the pressure and the lack of other options. Well, was that around the same time as a story that you had shared when we were in Springdale? Where you had stepped into... I shared a lot of stories. The yeah. one where you stepped, you were, you're like, you were sharing that, you know, you're a big, tough guy, mm. riding on your motorcycle, oh, go to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. go to priest. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, 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 that one. Oh, geez, I'll share that. So, yeah. I'm a big guy and I, I used to be a daily Harley rider until I got run over. So I just, well, I love it. my motorcycle. I love that, that life. I love the freedom of it. So anyway, I ride in, I've got a big beard and I'm, fl- for those of you who can't see me, I have a big beard <laughs> and I'm bald. I've shaved my head and I am very deliberate in my look. Um, but anyway, I roll into church. It's been, it's been some time since I've gone to church, but I was like, yeah, you know, I'll go. Um, I feel like reconnecting might be good. Um, but I roll in. I had just got back from my sister's wedding where she had married a woman, Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, my mother would have been if she could have. She had something come up. So she went to like the ceremony before, but couldn't make it to the wedding. So mm-hmm. she gets a pass. <laughs> uh, and my brother Jake also had attended something else with her, but couldn't make it to the actual wedding. But the rest of my family intentionally didn't go. Mm. And it's a big family. Yeah. Right. And so they were like, no, this is a boycott. Uh, and it was really rough being the only one there representing half of the wedding. I right? bet. It was like not great. My cousin, to his credit, did show up. Mm. Uh, and he he lived nearby. And so he and the family dropped in for a couple of minutes. And, you know, he's active Mormon. Mm. Um, but he has a really good understanding and always was non-traditional. He has a really good understanding of like the underpinnings of it. Mm-hmm. Fred, I'm talking about you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what happened next was really rough. So I roll in. This now is, is this after the church had come out with their thing? Uh, chronologically, I, I think it was before. Okay. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, time's tricky. Not, I know, I know it is. I've got to like rewind and relive. It doesn't um, matter, I was just curious. Good question though. Uh, so I roll in and people look at me. To be clear, I'm like, I'm wearing, you know, the white shirt and tie. I might have a blue shirt. But anyway, I roll in and I'm respectful, but I'm very obviously not your traditional like Mormon guy. Mm-hmm. 
And this happens outside of the church too. People look at me and they think they know who I am mm-hmm. immediately, which is fine. That's cool. Uh, I use that to my advantage usually, right? Like I'll be like, oh yeah, you think I'm this guy? Sure. Well, let's talk, let's talk monster trucks, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> I'll riff with you about <laughs> diesel engines. I can do that. Uh, so the, the, I make it to church, I get to elders quorum, which is like, I think the third meeting, maybe it's the second meeting. I think it's the second meeting in this one. Um, and the instructor asks an awesome question, like awesome. I'm really excited about it. Okay. He goes, what's the biggest problem facing the church today? And I'm like, good gravy. This is awesome. Let's talk. And I'm like, it's, you know, the maybe hypocrisy amongst the membership. It's an absence of appreciation of love and mm-hmm. all of these different things. And I'm like going through my mind. I'm like, yes, these are great things we can talk about. Meaningful discussion. And the first person to speak while I'm thinking and formulating my thoughts is this dude in the back. And he just kind of spouts off, well, it's all them queers. And I'm like, what? So I like turn and I give him this like slow look over my right shoulder. I can still see this dude in my mind's eye as he looks at me and gives me this like smile, this like smug, self-affirmed smile and gives me this like little thumbs up. Like, yeah, bud, I'm with you. We hate gays. And I'm about to lose my mind, right? Listen, I was like, I instructed debate and argumentation. (laughs) I was a competitor. Uh I was named, I had all, I've got a full trophy case, a full trophy case of saying good job at talking real good Uh and making other people feel dumb sometimes. And I just looked at this dude and I was like, you have no idea Mm. the wrath I'm about to open on you. (laughs) So... And it was fresh. It was raw for me. Like my sister had just been rejected by my family for yeah. who she was. I don't know, man. So so I turned and looked at this dude. He gives me the thumbs up and I was like, oh man, that's it. It's over. So I kind of took over the class and my overarching premise was the real problem facing the church is this guy. The fact that he thinks he's winning a war of love with tools of hate. Mm. And how on earth can you do that? Mm-hmm. You can't. It's impossible. And so at the end of it, you know, I, there were people that were like weeping, like men that were weeping in this class because they'd never had anybody stand up against like the bullying mm-hmm. of the church before. Mm-hmm. And not even the church proper. Like I know that's not the church's position or whatever, but like that exists in the church and people just kind of roll with it. Right. Nobody stands up to it. So I stood up to it and I dressed this guy down for the full session. Like this guy and the idea of him became my target and it was rough dude like i'm not gonna <laughs> uh, i love when you're originally telling this story you're like i wanted to check to see who this guy was before you know like maybe it's some old guy he generational w- gap yeah yeah oh yeah let's be clear yeah he was uh he was probably younger than me actually um it's not a huge town but like you know he, he should know better right? right so i'd put him in his 30s um Maybe not a traditional, regular, what you expect Utah Mormon to be, mm-hmm. but like he's, there's one of him in every ward, right. at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he didn't, there was no rejection of what he said either. There was no like, oh, Bill, you got to calm it down. It just like hung in the air, <laughs> right? And that's when I decided I had to go. Yeah. I had to do it. I think it's beautiful that you did. Well, I, it, it was almost a mandate. I wish I was there in that. I would yeah. have really enjoyed that. It was, you know, honestly, I don't remember most of it I, yeah. because you kind of slip into this flow 
and it just kind of happened. And then at the end, I was like, and that's the last you'll see of me. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, and never once did anyone even reach out. Huh? Like they knew where I was. Uh-huh. They had my number. Uh-huh. They were done. They knew. Yeah. So anyway, I dressed him down. Oh, and then this homie had the, he had been asked to give the closing prayer at the very <laughs> beginning before all this went down. He's like. So then he's got to go stand back up in front of everybody. I ripped him apart and he gets up and the last word he thinks he's going to get in, the last word before the prayer is, you know, a lot of people think I'm a bigot, but that's not true. <laughs> and I'm like, bro. So the last word that I got in was maybe you should buy a dictionary. <laughs> and then he gave this like weird prayer and I walked, I just pieced out of there, man. It was rough. But... That was enough for me. Like, yeah. that was it. And there were people in the in that room who'd spent their entire life maybe struggling yeah. with this deep self hatred mm. because maybe they are gay. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe they're wrestling with this thing, mm-hmm. and they just will never acknowledge it. They'll they'll push it away. They'll never be who they are because who they are is bad. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they have somebody standing up for them, mm. and they just. It was beautiful. That part. Yeah, to, I bet it was. To see them have a champion and to fall behind them, it was really beautiful. Hmm. Anyway, so I'll do, I'd do that every day if I could. I'd go out there and, <laughs> you know. Take Let's up, have a conversation. Take up the sword. But, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was, there were a couple of moments like that and for then, me. Yeah, that just kind of solidified that Yeah. the religion left you. Yeah. But it was more your awareness around the fundamentals, right? Yeah, great observation. Yeah. Uh, it's not so much that, there was any radical shift in the religion, even though it has changed. It's just that I became more conscious. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's fine. I think that's beautiful. Like I look back at what I consider to be like the primary tool of my abuse, right? The people that were abusing me were using the religion to do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it is what it is. It's, it's not like I'm, I don't resent the church. Mm-hmm. I don't resent, people in the church and i think i owe that to having a really gradual departure yeah um i do recognize that a lot of my pain is uh someone in the church teaching me to hold the religious gun to my head Mm. myself Mm -hmm. my whole life Mm -hmm. and so i became my own abuser because the church kind of teaches you not just the church but like christianity proper assumes badness in you um it assumes this foundation of being wrong you're fallen and so if that's your base you're you're stuck man you're kind of screwed you're screwed you really can never work out of that until after you die correct and hopefully you've done enough good you've done enough good and then and then there's other, you know, branches of Christian faith where it's like, yeah, well, I, I've accepted Jesus in my life. But ultimately, you can't get there by yourself. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no, there's a gap. Yeah. Well, and this brings up, you know, one of the things I think that it's really important to remember, especially for those of you listening that are in the process of leaving and navigating the waters. I mean, even I'm 10 years out and some of the things that we're speaking to now um, I did a podcast a few episodes ago about the fact that I believe that we're, Christianity is on the triangle. We're victims. God's yeah. the God, Jesus, rescuer. You know, Satan is the devil, or the devil is the persecutor. 
But there's all these different, you even spoke to it earlier with these promises that that was really sacred to you, that there's still a part of you that holds on to that. Yeah. There's all these things that were fundamentally part of who we were and still are. Right. And I think it's important to remember this piece that you're speaking to right here of like there you really can never do any right on this planet and hope and maybe but maybe maybe you can maybe there's a chance that if you're repent enough if right. you're good enough if you're without acknowledging that these shadow parts of you that you actually feel shame and guilt about these natural right. parts of man right that maybe it's possible that as you're listening right now, how much of that are you still carrying with you even though you've stepped out of the religion? Right. Most of us probably are still carrying parts of that of never good enough. Yeah. Because it's been fundamentally a part of, for, you know, I was born and raised within Mormon religion for several generations. Yeah. A lot of us have been. So then there's that encoding that also comes through. Right. So it's an interesting awareness to think about, hmm, how much of that, religious upbringing is actually still hanging out in my coding. So this is a, a beautiful point. Um, let's slip into a little philosophy. Yeah? Absolutely. So Nietzsche, mm-hmm. love him or hate him, those of you who have studied Nietzsche, I don't care. Uh, I think Nietzsche's got a lot of really good to say um, about what is real. So his primary criticism, he has a pretty heavy criticism against Christianity in general. He's like, one of my favorite bits is he thinks that Jesus the character of the person is an ubermensch, which is like the goal, the overman, the thing that's overcome everything and that mm-hmm. has used their will, which is the essential part of what it is to be human is your will mm-hmm. to power. Mm-hmm. And he consistently is just gaining more power, gaining more power. And he, his meekness is power. He has the capacity to do anything, but he chooses not to. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, that's great. But then Christians come in after him and they say, Oh, I'm meek, but really they're just weak. Hmm. And so they're putting on the clothes of me- of meekness, which is power, just because they can't do something. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm, I have no power. Oh, that's great. How good that I am weak. And he's like, ah, that's garbage. You should strive to improve and get more power. Power being understood as the ability to act in a situation, right? Mm-hmm. And so his issue with Christianity is like several fold. But one of the biggest ones is like, Jesus got it right. And nobody else after him really did. Uh, if you lived like Jesus did, actually, empowered, you'd it's get hard. it. You'd it's get hard. there. It's hard, sure. But like, yeah. if you actually were striving to be to develop yourself and develop power, then you'd be great. Mm-hmm. So, so Nietzsche gets this big line about a, a whole second thing about resentment is this principle is of resentment against something you can't stop. Mm. So for him. God is this, right? There's, or the the power that God represents or the universe or whatever, or a master of some kind. So Nietzsche says, there is this resentment that is impotent. You have no power to do anything about it. I can Mm -hmm. hate God. I can rage at God, but nothing's going to change. So where do I put that? I put it inside. I put it on myself. And so this anger towards this external power that is ultimately unchangeable hmm. forces me that anger's got to go somewhere mm-hmm. and so this resentment is a self enslavement and a self self abuse mm-hmm. in the name of the person or entity that you can't control hmm. 
So interesting to your point about guilt and shame and all these things that are kind of intrinsic to, I think a lot of, a lot of Christian faith and the people that have grown up in it. I think a lot of that is because of this resentment. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't change the divine or the universe or whatever. So we turn that, that sadness, that anger, that hatred and that kind of disgust Mm -hmm. onto ourselves and, and frankly onto other people. Yeah. The judgment piece. mm -hmm. and Yeah. Right. Do you find, however, that I would agree with that largely. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I would think within Christianity or within religion in general, it is something that you would carry until you do shift out of understanding that God is within. Yeah. Instead of exactly without. Right. Exactly right. Exactly and then right. to that point of what he's saying with Jesus and yeah. master, it's self-mastery. It's that sovereignty piece of what am I capable of? Sovereignty is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I don't mean to say that Nietzsche was 100% right, right? I just think that it's interesting. It's a philosopher. To, so it's, it's philosophy. It's something to consider what he's to, yeah. saying. Uh, and to say, yeah, maybe this got some weight to it. Yeah. Like you said, and I agree wholeheartedly, there's truth in all things. Yeah. In all things, yeah. One piece that I think is really interesting, if you look at the um, Christian societies, right? Any society that has a Western, air quotes, Western society is going to have its roots in this same sort of philosophy, mm-hmm. right? And when you think about the the vulgar, right? The, the profane, what's a swear word? Can you think of a swear word that is not either one religious, hell damn, and the variations thereof, mm-hmm. or two about the physical body? Like the F word is about, a, you know, no. it's a, a carnal physical function. Uh-huh. Uh, we talk about excrement in a very negative way. I heard a podcast recently that actually associated this is fuck actually mm-hmm. with high ecstasy, pleasures connecting with God, which I hadn't. And I can't remember what the somebody had. There's some principle or something that associated that. Mm. That was the first time that I'd ever heard that connection. Before. I'd be interested to hear there. Like it was that, an that Aubrey connection. Marcus part podcast that he did with his wife. I'll have to go find. I'll send it to you. But like the the even the word vulgar, all it means is common. Mm-hmm. It just means everybody has it, right? Yeah. But everything when we when somebody is being mean to us, we mm-hmm. call them what an, like an asshole or a dick. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Why is there shame associated? Why is that bad? Those are just things that people have. Well, even the feminine body parts that are especially you know, the feminine body parts. You know, they are. Then you go and use that as swear words, mm-hmm. and those are the it ones is interesting. I'm even uncomfortable using, uh, but yeah, yeah totally. And, and and it's the it's the physical that is shameful, mm-hmm. right? And so, but nah, it's but it's yeah. not the case in non-Western environments as much, right? Oh. It's less so. Hmm. But it's the Christian foundation, I think, that you know this this uh, mortality bad body bad mm-hmm. thing and it's just kind of permeated well if you look at the foundation you're going to know the history much much better than i am but the foundation and, and the start of christianity came from different um leaders rule rulers that wanted to have more say on their people yeah how do we control how do we minimize how do we i mean really that is more of when christianity and the fundamental christianity was started and honed yeah so religion writ large kind of has that Mm -hmm. um if you look at 
like the pre-Ayurvedic religions and even in India before it was India. Mm-hmm. Um, going way back into Eastern religion, even before Hinduism, you start with fire, mm-hmm. right? And fire is the sacred thing because it is dangerous. It's cool. It does a lot of good stuff. It, you know, can clean things and it can cook your food and keep you from getting sick, keep you warm, keep you alive. But it also can burn down the village. So, so it's considered sacred at that point. So the first priesthood that formed was to control the sacred fire. Hmm. And as an extension of that, suddenly fire becomes more manageable, right? Like we're like, oh, we can control it now. We understand the science of it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But this priesthood has had its entire existence based on the control of fire. So now what do you do? Mm-hmm. Here's my whole livelihood. It's going to be taken away because somebody can have a fireplace in their house. Yeah. Well, then all of a sudden there's a shift towards the internal fire. Mm. And all it is is like self-regulation. So now you go to a guru or to a yogi and they teach you how to regulate your internal fire. You know, your muscles burning when you do yoga, that's, if you track its roots all the way back, that's like the first iteration of this external fire becoming internal. Mm-hmm. And what am I going to do with that? Well, I need somebody to teach me. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you have religion as a means of control again. It's not just controlling fire, but now it's controlling your body. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you that, that what, uh, Eastern religions tend to be less controlling, mm-hmm. but there still is some like gatekeeping and gatekeeping is not always bad. Right. It just can be abused. Mm-hmm. But you're exactly right. Religion, by and large, is designed to say, this is how you do the thing. These are the standards by which you live. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I totally get it. And, yeah, religion itself, I, I don't think it really matters where you're from, uh, which religion it is. It all kind of has the same thrust. Yeah. Yeah. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Well, we're hitting about the hour mark, which is usually when I like to start wrapping up. Although, wow, that was quick. I know it is quick, and I would it would be fun to actually have you come back on and speak a little bit more <laughs> to sure. the philosophies because most people, one of the things that I so enjoy and appreciate about you is the breadth of knowledge that you do mm. hold. Thank you. And I, I mean, goodness sakes, our conversations then unwinding these parts of, you know, maybe this is mm. all an illusion. And, you oh. know, when you start diving into some of that, that is, since we've already said fuck on this podcast, it is a mind fuck. <laughs> it is. You know, but it is interesting things to consider as, as you're navigating out of religion and into different places of what is truth for me. Right. Because in my opinion, truth is subjective. There are some fundamental truths yeah. like gravity, sure. things like that, but... For the most part, truth is subjective. Yeah, so I I think that the true will be generally true, but also our lived experience is what matters. Right. Right, and it's the things that we... So, so I okay, you kind of spilled my coffee a little bit here. Not really. Uh, <laughs> in saying that physical objects, the physical object discussion, and if I do come back, I'd love to get into it and just yeah. kind of riff on um, reality, mm-hmm. right? And I'll be more prepared for that. But I had a really interesting conversation recently. I did a dance retreat last weekend. Um, I didn't dance. <clears throat> I don't 
yet dance. You were there creating some of your cocktails, which we'll, I'm going to, we're going to dive into this in a second. Oh, sure, sure. So yeah, I was there creating cocktails and, and, uh, just really helped. Like, I just love that stuff. So anyway, I'm there doing that. And, um, I get into a conversation with this woman about the nature of reality. Mm. And I say something to the effect of, which I, I actually believe that most of our life, like life in general, it's really difficult to prove to me that it's not a simulation, mm-hmm. right? That it's not something that I am, the, the me that is actually me is participating in, mm-hmm. but that the stuff around us isn't real and the physical objects aren't actually real. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to get this table in front of me. I can't actually understand it because I can't, I'll never access it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kant calls this the thing in itself, which is like the actual essence of it. I can't, I can't get access to, I can't get access to you in your interior space. I just have kind of what's inside me, which this interior space is not a physical thing. Mm -hmm. So I think the physical objects properly are not real. Now, having said that, I'm still going to leave this room through the door Mm -hmm. and I'm still going to eat food Mm -hmm. and I'm still going to, you know, pay my bills and all those things. But as I'm speaking to this woman, I realize the important punchline to this whole piece I might be wrong. Physical objects might be real. Mm -hmm. But living as though they aren't is the right way to live. Mm -hmm. Because if you're living as though they aren't, the thing that matters is the experience Mm -hmm. of the thing, Mm -hmm. not the thing itself. It's my interaction with the thing that's Mm -hmm. valuable. And so if I'm living for the experiences of things and not for the things themselves, then all of a sudden I'm living for the right reasons. I'm not living for the car. I'm living Mm -hmm. for the drive. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. So she helped me. It's about the being and not the doing. It's about enjoying the experience because yes, this table is 99.99999% space. Space. Yes. And we know from science that particles move based off of our intention, our thought, our desire. So then in that sense, are we creating everything in our reality? And if that's the case, then yeah, can we just enjoy what we're creating? Right. And understand we are creating it. So create something different if you don't really enjoy it. Word. So if you can just realize that the physical objects around me, real or not real, doesn't matter. They're not the goal. The goal is to enjoy them and to mm-hmm. experience them and to share that with other people. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden your life becomes much less ugly, right? Yeah. Like you're not worried about the the grind and the mundane and the, it becomes you you start focusing on these sublime moments of mm-hmm. of shared experience with a kindred soul. Well, and this kind of circles back to where we first started mm-hmm. with talking about Buddhism versus Christianity and right. and the fundamental principles of that. It reminds me of a book that I read called The Afterlife of Billy Fingers, which is such an odd title. But it follows his journey. He he shares his experience after he dies with his sister who's still mm-hmm. alive. And she channels this book and writes it. And it was the first book that I read. I've never read such an extensive um, transition story Mm -hmm. of somebody's um, transition into the afterlife and the different levels, Mm. so to speak. But um, he was a drug dealer. He was uh, uh, in in his life lived out of his car, was homeless most of his life, but it was all experience. Wow. And he speaks to that and how in the grander sense of things, that was exactly perfect for what his yeah. soul wanted to choose. And it was the first book that I had read when you read his story that I wondered if we're not in a karmic cycle. Yeah. And until we wake up, mm-hmm. until we understand that we are the creators of our reality, it is all about enjoyment and some different pieces that I, you know, we're s- still moving into. Sure. 
are we just continuing to continually incarnate over and over again until we become awake enough to realize that, oh, we're more than this? Yeah. I think there's a lot of, a lot of room for that. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to riff on philosophy at length, uh, or even, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever topic. It's been a lot of fun. Thank it has you very been much. fun. Well, and one of the things I wanted to touch on, I mean, besides the fact you're freaking brilliant oh, and stop. you coach, do a lot of coaching in different modalities, at least mm. you have. I have. Maybe you are not currently. No, like I'm happy to get back into it. Um, my life has been really, I don't know, man, I, I uh, I chase dopamine, and so when something's really fun, I this is funny. This is the third time dopamine has come up in the last few days for me. So this really? is really interesting for me to witness. I throw myself, absolutely throw myself into something that I like, uh-huh. and I go all in for as long as it keeps my interest. Mm-hmm. Which means, if you are passionate about something, you can master it fairly quickly. Uh, I throw myself in and I, I, I master things pretty quickly because it's, it consumes me, mm-hmm. right? It's not a job. It's like my passion. Right. And so a big part of what I've done has been coaching. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love teaching. I love working with people. And, uh, and then, You're and then I was ready for a change. Well, and you do yeah. these amazing classes that talk about spirits liquor yeah alcohol yeah so one of my most recent uh ventures that i really love i i I found myself in utah kind of by accident um i was getting ready for accidentally on purpose it was beautiful and i'm really glad i'm here uh but i was getting ready for a five-year uh journey through southeast asia where i was going to live like a fisherman like i was going to be a fisherman actually and just kind of travel through villages and be super poor and i was really excited for it i was because i needed to kind of put a capstone on that part of my lived experience and I was like ready to go. And then COVID hit and closed Thailand, which was going to be my first stop. So I'm like, well, now what do I do? Uh, my brothers lived in Pleasant Grove, Utah. And they're like, hey, come stay with us for a while while this whole COVID thing blows over. Right. And I'm like, yeah, six weeks, sure. <laughs> then all of a sudden I'm stuck in Pleasant Grove. And I'm like, what am I doing here? This place is wonderful, but also very boring. <laughs> it's Utah County. Yeah. And so it didn't take me long to want to do something else. And so... All of a sudden, I found myself... I've been a bartender my whole life, like my whole adult life. Um, I found myself opening a new bar program in Pleasant Grove, and it was really good. And I was able to do what I wanted. So I did craft cocktails and like really custom stuff, beautiful work. I, I love it. I love it so much. Uh, and then, man, I get this guy coming into my bar, and he is very clearly either still a member of the Mormon church or like yes- yesterday <laughs> left, right? Like... <laughs> He comes in and he sits like so uncomfortable. He's so uncomfortable. And I try my best to put people at ease. And I'm like, how's it going, man? What are you drinking today? And he has like this fear in him and it's radiating off of him. Like the devil himself is going to drag him by the ankles under my bar and into hell. And he just says, he looks at me in the face and and he says, I'll have a Roman Coke. A Roman Coke. And I'm like, a Roman Coke? And he's like, yeah, please, a Roman Coke. And I was like, a Roman Coke doesn't exist. <laughs> like, I've been doing this for 18 years, bud, and it does, it's not a thing. And he's like, uh, it's, uh, it's a Coke with rum in it. And I was like, oh, my poor, sweet summer child, that is a rum and Coke. Oh, man. And it occurred to me that this poor guy had probably made a fool of himself without knowing it. And if you do something like that in front of an important person, 
at a cocktail party, mm-hmm. you know, you don't get your promotion. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. Like relationships, the decisions about you are made, whether you like it or not, mm-hmm. based on your impression. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they think you're a doofus. So I'm like, oh, man. So I gave him a quick crash course. And I, it occurred to me, like, there's a lot of people like him who recently left the church and who don't know at all how to live as though they're not in the church. Mm-hmm. And so I started teaching courses on... Uh, I call it I call it my uh, how to drink for recovering Mormons class, <laughs> and I teach it on Sundays. Uh, it's my Church of the Non Holy Spirits, and so I teach people about the that. spirits themselves, um, what their identities are, how they're made, uh, give you kind of the vocabulary to engage with them, yeah. and then I make the best version that I can make of the best cocktails mm-hmm. for each of the spirits, mm-hmm. so that you can go into any bar and comfortably order something and first of all, not look stupid. Mm -hmm. And second of all, be confident and get a drink that you're going to like. Yeah. Right. And so to me, that's been so fun. And I really, I understand that's why I'm here. Yeah. I'm in this area specifically because of the volume of recovering Mormons Mm -hmm. who need kind of a metropolitan education on cocktails. Well, and one of the things that I appreciate it about, because I would have loved to go to a class like that when I was stepping out of religion, because it is like this, I don't know what I like. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. And then it almost becomes um, a little bit abused, right? It does. Instead of having this appreciation yeah. for where this spirit came from, what's the background of it? What's the actual foundation of it? What does right. that just taste like? Right. And you do have a different appreciation for it in general. Yeah. And so it becomes more of a, like, I I love food. I'm a food, like Same. a foodie. I will go and appreciate the different things that are put together, although I won't eat certain things because mm. I know what I don't like. Yeah. It's the same thing with alcohol. Like, you get to a place of appreciating it more for the experience versus right. the, I just want to get a buzz. Or right. I'm just going to go get shit-faced. Yeah, or, exactly. And so that's a big part of my class is, like, helping people not drink like a college frat boy when they leave the church. Cause that always happens. They yeah. always fall in and they're like, well, this is what it is. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, ah, oh, man. And then you develop an unhealthy relationship yeah. with alcohol. And, and then everybody that was in the church was right. Cause that's, exactly. you know, exactly. It's self-reinforcing. You're like, oh, well I should never drink. It's obviously bad. But really if you're drinking a cocktail that's, that's carefully made and is thoughtfully made, I should say, all of a sudden you're getting like a flavor experience. Like, as a as a craft cocktail creator, like as a mixologist, I I'm ev- trying to evoke experiences for people. Mm-hmm. I still remember I had a I carpooled down to this event with this guy, and he's like, "Well, I got a bunch of alcohol in the back." I was like, "Well, I'm doing a cocktail event for part of this retreat," and he's like, "Oh, so you're a mixologist, huh?" He spits the word out like it's poison. He's like, "A mixologist." I'm like, "I mean, yeah, I guess." As a matter of fact, yes. I was like, "I've been doing it for a long time, bud," and he's like, "Okay, well." Everyone calls themselves a mixologist. I just drink to get drunk. And I'm like, cool, that's fine. Do it. That's that's your life. But try my stuff. And so Dan's a pretty cool guy. He's had a whole lifetime. He's never been in the church. He's got a whole lifetime of drinking behind him. And he's a little offended because he's normally the, the drink mixer guy. Right? Oh. And all of a sudden I'm coming in, this, uh-huh. you know, New York So that City. was my little yeah. edge. Yeah, yeah. So he had a little, a little bite to it. And then... Uh, and then I make him my basil gimlet, right? Oh. This is my Mona Lisa. Uh, this is a cocktail that is so simple and so elegant. Um, I've worked on it for a long time before I finally got it just where I want it. 
And, you know, it, it's springtime in a glass. Mm. I gave him this drink, right? And he, like, gets tears in his eyes. Like, oh. he starts to, to weep. And he's, he's probably in his 60s. Grizzly old man, like, talk about fighting people all day long. Interesting. And he's weeping because I this cocktail took him to his childhood. Oh. It's like that Ratatouille moment, right? Uh. But he's like... He's a sister sipping it. He doesn't shoot it like his shots normally goes down. And he sits there and he comes over to me afterwards. He's like wiping the tears out of his eyes. He goes, Aaron, this took me to the apple orchard next to my house when I grew up. Where I used to steal apples as a kid. And like that experience is right right here. And that to me is why I do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's my, I'm, I'm able to bypass most of the channels of communication to get my idea right into your soul. Mm. So that's what I'm doing and I love it. Mm, and uh, teaching people how to mix drinks is important, but also teaching them how to appreciate it mm-hmm. and how to walk into a bar and not, not feel intimidated, mm-hmm. right? If you can mm-hmm. sit down at the bar and confidently order a drink that you like mm-hmm. and that you can reliably get, your relationship with alcohol will shift. You're not drinking to get drunk, you're drinking for the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's healthy, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's positive. It's not... It's, it's more not about enjoying agent. the exactly. moment like we were just talking about and the experience. Exactly. So most of my clients, they'll drink three cocktails spaced out over the course of a night um, at, when, at my restaurant. Um, but they won't get drunk drunk mm-hmm. because their whole goal is to be able to experience the thing mm-hmm. that we've made together. And I love doing things like that where they'll come in and say... Uh, I'd like you to make me drink. And I say, okay, what experience are you going for? Yeah. Like, do you have a, a time in your life or a location or an mm-hmm. emotion that we want to evoke here? I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. So somebody You're really come in. Good at it. Oh, thank you. So uh, actually I really like this last, the retreat that we went to, um, I had a cocktail portion of it. Just, I love that stuff. And, uh, the four ladies, the four divas that, uh, that created the event and held the space. I was given this, for the listeners, a Herculean task. It was really hard, actually, <laughs> to make a drink that represents four separate people as one. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the la- the four women that held such radically different energy and hosted this space. And Sarah's like, hey, make a drink that represents all of us. Mm-hmm. Like, almost like a throwaway. Like, ah, you can do it. And I'm like, oh, shit. No, oh, I don't know could. that I can. Yes, you did. And thank you. Yeah. So I was like, what can I do? I have to have four very distinct flavors that all do different things, but work together well. Mm-hmm. How do I do it? And so that challenge is just beautiful. I love that stuff. Yeah. And was it okay? You turned out okay? Oh my gosh. I still, I'm like, can you come back over to my house and make that drink? Because <laughs> that was probably the most, so just to clarify, uh, it was me, Sarah, Cammie, and Shelby at this last yeah. retreat. And the four of us are very different um, in a lot of ways. And so coming together was yeah. for sure an interesting task. And you you knocked it out of the park. And it is one of those things that even with the other drinks that you had mixed, it was like the sipping experience. This one was one that's like, oh, I just want to take my time with yeah. it. Because the flavors would continue to evolve. They do. And it, it was... It was spectacular. I still want to know who was who because Aaron went through and like was like, okay, I'm adding this because this is earthy. Then I'm adding this because it has how however many herbs in it and like all these different and then flowers and Uh lime and I really tried. So my my goal was uh, I needed to have four very powerful presences. And so if you're dealing with a spirit that has a powerful like presence, Uh the first one that's going to come to mind is with gin. Mm. Gin is a dominant spirit. And if you ever drink gin, it's like essence of pine salt. It just tastes like, um, tastes like a pine tree. Right. Mm -hmm. 
by itself. Mm-hmm. But if you're just shooting gin, you 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 probably are an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> let's talk. Let's, let's talk. Let's yeah, look me up and we'll we'll work on it. But so gin as a star is brilliant because it'll take herbal flavors and other things and bring it out to the front. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, I did gin. Um, we did elderflower. Uh, I did green chartreuse. Lime. I love lime. We sweetened it a little bit. It was just like... It was amazing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Was I was really pleased with it. I think it turned out. Yeah. But part of the point is flavors and, and understanding your craft, my craft, is um, flavors have different half-lives. So my goal is to give you a flavor experience mm-hmm. that is balanced but mm-hmm. still changes and evolves. So your first taste, you're going to get all of the flavors, but the most dominant one is up front. But I want that flavor to fall off first. Mm-hmm. So then you taste the subtle underneath. And so you have different flavors that are going to last for different amounts of time mm-hmm. on your tongue. And as they fall off, you get this different experience. And so yeah. that's that's really what I'm leaning into. And I love it. It's my art. And I'm really pleased. And so you teach these classes. I do. You'll actually create classes for people if they grab, grab a group together. That's correct? right. That's right. So how do people get a hold of you? Yeah. Uh, my best way. So I'm good at a lot of things and I'm really bad at several things. I'm like, and you are not on social media. I am not on social media because my mental health is so much better when I'm not on social media, <laughs> but my businesses suffer and I, I get it. There's a trade-off. Uh-huh. So um, you can email me directly. Uh, it's Aaron, A-A-R-O-N dot Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot Trembath, T-R-E-M-B-A-T-H at gmail.com and be like, hey, I heard about your class. I'd be interested in taking one. Sweet. And then I put you on a short list. I'm working on a website with my brother. Yeah. By the time this podcast airs, it might even be up. Sweet. And I'll get you that information. But did I say podcast? Uh, website. So I'm working on a website. Um, I'll let you know. Uh, but yeah, like that's basically it. If you get 10 people at least, I'll start a class for you. Sweet. And I kind of cap them at about 25 or 30. They, yeah. they start to get a bit unwieldy at that point. But uh, but 10 to 20 is a really good number. Well, I'll make sure to put your email down below. And when this yeah. air, the, if you have your website up by the time this mm-hmm. airs, then I'll put that down below. That sounds too. great. Thank you. But oh my goodness, Aaron, it's a pleasure. You know, it really was. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, have, I, seriously, I want to have you back on again because I would love to dive into some of the philosophy. Because yeah. even the fundamentals of religion and, and their backgrounds, most of us do not know. Yeah. I know I don't. I know some. I know a little. Probably yeah. more than a lot of people. But yeah. But still, even that is very, very minimal. <laughs> I would be happy to, um, to come back. And I would love to... If I was prepared to speak specifically on philosophy, yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to do it. That'd be super fun. Real pleasure. Awesome. Well, thank you, thank you. Thanks, man. All right, one last question. I always yeah. ask all my questions, yes. my guests, this: for those, for everything that you've gone through, navigating the waters after religion, and kind of going through that transition period, for those that are listening that are in that place of just struggle, everything's kind of falling away. Yeah. What What is the one thing right now in this moment that you would impart as like this is my advice to you? Yeah, I would advise you to remember that religion is not spirituality. Mm-hmm. That they're different. You can be spiritual and not religious. In fact, that's the best way to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that when everything starts to fall away, all your foundations or whatever, there is something holding you up. Mm-hmm. And that something is what you should lean into. Yeah. So take a look at it, figure out what it is, um, and cling to it. And it's not going to be the structure of the faith, but it will be something that's deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Something that the faith is trying to sell you. And that's something you already have, which is your intrinsic relationship to the divine. Yeah. 
It's radically personal. It's just yours. Mm -hmm. And even though religion has been selling it back to you for your entire life, you had it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate that. Wasn't that an awesome interview? Thank you for joining us today. If you are feeling the call to be a guest, head over to my website, amandajoyloveland.com and go to the podcast tab. You'll see halfway down the page, a place where you can submit an application to come onto my podcast. I would love to have you as a guest. And don't forget, if you are wanting to be a part of that amazing webinar that I'll be hosting on October 30th at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, head to my website, amandajoyloveland.com forward slash activation and get registered today. And as always, know that you are not alone. And while you are feeling alone as you're navigating through this, there are a lot of people who can understand and empathize with what you're going through. So with that, sending you so much love. 